Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we kick off our run on Philip II of Macedon, father of Alexander the Great. So yes, at long last, people, we're here, we're talking about, I guess our main, the word like, we're really starting to get to our main topic at this point, very excited. Philip II is just a truly incredible and staggering character in his own right, and really jazzed up to talk about him for what is probably going to be the next three episodes focused entirely on him, and then I'm sure he'll come up again throughout the season. And then finally, finally, we'll be ready to talk about Alexander the Great. Now today, a couple of notes for you. One, recording in a different room than I normally do. Not sure how that's going to go, what the echoes are going to be like, the ambience of the room. We'll see, we'll see. Second, I'm going to say Alexander a lot this episode, very few times in reference to our guy, so sorry for teasing you. And all this bonus content, all this, not bonus content, all this late work leading up to the main content might seem a bit extreme, it might seem crazy, but I think as will become clear, at least by the end of this, hopefully sooner, understanding Philip II to the extent that we can and having a firm grasp of his accomplishments are incredibly crucial for a study of Alexander the Great. And I also think it's important to establish even just as a refresher, a understanding of context of the larger Greek and Persian world at this point as well. This is also the part of the show where we'll be meeting every other week at this point. I feel like I've done a poor job communicating that and making that clear, but because of the sheer amount of information coming and the need to be accurate and to consult and synthesize all the sources that I have for you guys, I feel like it makes more sense to take a week in between so I can make sure my info's good, that I have the different variations of each story and stuff. And so I think in order to do this right, I just need that extra week in between, and I think it'll be worth it. And before we dive in, be sure to give the show a follow on Instagram and Twitter. You can search High Tea Obsessed. I'm sure it'll pop up. But on Instagram, it's at High Tea Obsessed Podcast. And on Twitter, you can find me at High Tea O Podcast. Also, be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. And you check out the Patreon at the link in the show notes if you want to, if you feel like doing that. Otherwise, no big deal. Ain't no thing. But with that absolute just staggering amount of malarkey out of the way, let's get into today's content. So this episode, we're going to start with a brief overview of Macedonian history, and it'll end with Philip II's rise to the throne. So may have oversold the amount of Philip we're getting this episode, but still, I think this is the best episode so far. In the previous episodes of this season, we've touched on numerous happenings in the Greek and Persian worlds throughout their history and their interactions with one another. In these grand narratives, Macedonia, if it were mentioned at all, was often a footnote. Little is known about this ancient nation before the reign of King Amatas I, who ruled in, four, in 547 BCE, nearly 200 years before Philip would rise to the throne, Philip II would rise. We do know that, depending on how many of them were actually real, between five and eight kings ruled in the Ardead dynasty prior to King Amantas I. We also know that the Ardeads claimed to be descended from the classical hero Heracles, who you might be more familiar with by his Roman name, Hercules. As we will see, the Macedonian court was often a place of great tumult, but the Ardeads possessed the sole claim to the throne and one of them served as king all the way from the foundation of the dynasty until Alexander the Great. So that's like 
It's believed to be like more than 400 years, which is pretty crazy considering how many assassinations and rebellions take place, as we'll see. And then also just like the precarious situation the nation often found itself and how kind of ineffective a lot of the RDA dynasts turned out to be. Now, some of this tumult seems to be that almost any, if not literally any, Ardiad male could claim to be the heir to the throne, provided that they could muster support from the army and or raise an army to support their claim. Not great, you know, can be dicey at times. Traditionally, the borders of ancient Macedonia were a little bit fluid, you know, depending on the effectiveness of the current ruler, if they were able to bring upper and lower Macedonia both into the into the mix, Upper Macedonia, if they could, would often elect to ignore the monarch of Macedonia. And it also depend, depended on their ability to stave off invasion from a number of neighbors who were quite keen to invade whenever they could, very often. And that is because ancient Macedonia was situated to the northeast of ancient Greece. The Greek sort of, what is that word? Just like what you think of, what is the fucking word I'm thinking of? The Greek Peninsula, I guess? That is because the Kingdom of Macedonia was situated to the northeast of ancient Greece. Mount Olympus served as the border between them in the south of Macedonia. And they were also bordered by Epirus, Epirus, I've heard it pronounced, to the west, Paeonia to the north, Thrace to the east, and Thessaly also to the south. It's kind of southeast. The Pindus mountain range split the kingdom of Macedonia into two, Upper Macedonia and Lower Macedonia. Lower Macedonia had rich soil, great weather, you know, pretty fair, pretty moderate. A lot of lumber going on, a lot of forests, some mines we'll see come into play later on in the story. And they were able to grow a lot of cereal grains, cereal crops. Pretty nice. Upper Macedonia, a lot more mountainous. And rugged, it could be argued that they were culturally more closely related to the to the Illyrian and Paeonians in the north. Could also they were like more pastoral, I believe, raising sheep and then coming down to graze them in the winter, summering up in the mountains, that type of thing. And in comparison to a lot of the Greek poli, Macedonia had a lot of natural resources. Because of this, a lot of their neighbors, including those influential Greek city states we've touched on particularly Athens and Thebes, were very keen to control and influence whenever they could the kingdom of Macedonia, which was often pretty much a petty kingdom with weak rulers. The Persians also at times sought to influence this kingdom with, when we, if you recall Darius's huge invasion, they were able to get a tribute from the Macedonians when they invaded Europe. And they weren't a formal satrapy, but they were sort of a junior junior partner. It has been argued that at times they were a full-on satrapy, but doesn't seem like that was the case. It seems mostly they were a willing junior partner of the Persian monarch. Now, the power of the Macedonian monarch was essentially absolute and limited only to what they could get away with. So, because the chains were often weak, meant they were often a pretty weak but when there was an effective king on the throne, it meant that the power of the throne could go quite a long way. And like I mentioned, the upper Macedonians were quite prone to ignore weaker, ineffective chains. And that's because they used to be like a bunch of independent tribes that were sort of unified and conquered by a Macedonian king at some point, a lower Macedonian king. 
So it's very confusing. But all of this also meant that the right ruler was sitting on a sleeping superpower. And now we get into some of the, I would call this a tricky bit of the conversation that reverberates to this day. Was the kingdom of Macedonia, aka ancient Macedonia, aka ancient Macedon, whatever we want to call it, was it a part of Greece? Depends who you ask, including depends which ancient Greek you asked. Because it's probably the easiest answer that at least the royal family was considered Greek. And probably yes and no to that, and probably yes and no to the whole Macedonians were Greek, Macedon was Greece. Very confusing. It was its own unique kingdom. The royal family 100% considered themselves to be Greeks, and the majority of the population, if not the entirety of the population, vote various forms of Greek. And that's not out of line for the Greek world at all. There were different ethnic groups. I don't know if ethnic groups is the right word, but there were various uh, different types of Greeks. So the Dorians, who I believe were like the Spartans, the Peloponnesians, the Ionians, who included the Athenians, and then also the Aeolians and Achaeans. And there were also the different forms and dialects amongst this Greek world, with the most commonly spoken being Attic Greek. And that is also what the royal court of and nobility of the Macedonians would speak. When the Macedonians wrote, they used Greek. Their naming conventions were Greek. They didn't require the services of translators. At least the nobles and royals didn't when they met with delegations from Athens, for instance. It is thought that the people of Upper Macedonia spoke Western Greek, sort of like the Molossians. And, you know, all this without a doubt. You know, the Macedonians, they had some weird expressions and accents compared to the, quote, civilized Greeks. But that's probably like a normal dude from the U.S. speaking to a Cajun guy, you know? Like, we can't understand half the things they say. They say the craziest things. Still speaking English, kind of. Still Americans. Like, what? I don't... Confusing. They also worshipped the same gods, and the ruling family, at least, were allowed to participate in the Olympic Games. With at least two prominent examples of this that I know of off the top of my head. One being Alexander I. Another will come up later in the narrative... And this is largely because they claimed that descendants from Heracles, so that obviously Heracles was Greek, so ergo, our dads had to be Greek as well. However, it also appears that the Macedonian kings throughout their history took great lengths to remain separate from Greece. They were clearly an independent nation, not little poli operating on its own, dominating little parts, or like ancient Athens with their empire. They were a city dominating a bunch of allies. This was a legitimate kingdom with a legitimate monarchy and nobles and all that. So that's a point in the separate thing. And a lot of this is based, obviously, on our sources primarily being biased and from ancient Athens. But it seems like their culture was wholly alien to many in the Greek world. In addition, the Greek world largely looked down upon monarchies that they existed at all, thought them to be a terrible form of government and something that no real Greek would tolerate. And in the Greek poli, they were mostly extinct by the time of Philip, and they were rare by the 5th and 4th centuries BCE. Macedonians also drank their wine unmixed, while the Greeks mixed theirs with water to dilute it. They also had shockingly few enslaved people compared to the Greeks, which was a point of derision from the Greeks. And the historian Ian Worthington writes in By the Spear, Philip II, Alexander the Great, and the Rise of 
and the rise and fall of the Macedonian Empire. More than just episodes from history and the nature of monarchic rule, the whole fabric of Macedonian society was alien to Greeks and so abhorred by them. A Macedonian male was an entirely different animal from his Athenian counterpart, for example. And then he goes into some details about how an Athenian man came of age at 18 to participate in the assembly, engage in debate, drinking parties, and sex parties that they were had going on, and was like a relatively equal participant in society. Whereas in Macedonia, things were a little more brutal, a little more Homeric in their traditions. For example, a man could not recline while sitting until he had killed a boar. So late at dinner, he had to sit straight up unless he had killed a boar. And they had these other markings, like if you hadn't killed a man in battle, you had to wear a little sash type thing. Only a woman who had just given birth was allowed to bathe, which seems kind of like propaganda to me. Doesn't seem like that is how a whole nation could operate. But I don't know. I wasn't there. The Macedonian kings also practiced polygamy, which was not something a civilized Greek person would deign to do. And that polygamy, in addition to being a whole Greek or not thing, also was a cause of instability because, you know, our dads, prolific breeders, got a lot of babies coming out, a lot of male heirs often. So, you know, a lot of, a lot of contenders for the throne at any given time. Now, does any of this matter? Does any of this, like, am I going to make a ruling here? I guess it depends who you are, which country you're in, uh, because this is still a debate going on to this day with real geopolitical implications, and I guess an example of why history is important, but it's just a relevant part of this history that impacts the modern day, so I wanted to bring it up regardless of my ability to make a ruling. Anyway, back to the Ardead dynasty. I don't know why I'm sometimes saying dynasty and sometimes saying dynasty. That's just what's happening. Anyway, in the beginning of the dynasty, we only know the names of those who held the throne and not much else. Philip I is an example of one of those rulers who came before Amintas I. So Amintas rules from 547 BCE to 498 BCE. And then he's succeeded by his son, Alexander I, who rules from 498 BCE to 454 BCE when he was succeeded for a brief time by Alcetas II, who would rule for only six years before being murdered. This is our first sort of concrete evidence of the hectic nature of Ardead rule. But Perdiccas II would succeed him and rule from 448 BCE until 413 BCE. So that little short six-year reign and murder situation, notwithstanding, ancient Macedon's ruling family enjoyed a pretty good run for a while. And then after that's when the wheels start to come off. We get a lot of... This is similar to what we saw with the Persian Empire, where the first couple rulers seemed to have a relatively good grasp of the throne and were able to enjoy long reigns, and then a bunch of assassinations and combat going on amongst nobles and rulers. So in a 20-year stretch from 413 to 393 BCE, four kings held the Ardead throne. Three were definitely murdered, and one died from maybe an illness, but also maybe murdered. And the new king, Amitas III, likely played a plot or played a part in murdering his predecessor. So Amitas III takes over 393 BCE. He was the great-grandson of Alexander I, but anyway, the point in that is that he wasn't some hasty descendant of the Ardead line, 
but despite neither his father nor grandfather being a chain, he had a pretty good claim to the throne and was just left alive as an adult for some reason. And he's the first chain we're going to pay any sort of real attention to because he is the father of our friend Philip II. So Amintas III would reign with a brief interruption in the middle of 493 BCE from 493 to 470 BCE. The brief interruption, the brief interruption comes when the Illyrians, which were sort of a loose confederation of tribes to the northwest of the kingdom of Macedonia, didn't really have a sense of a united like Illyrian national identity. They're probably not one people and just like a blanket term the Greeks gave them. Anyway, they drove the new king out of this country because a bunch of the tribes had been united under the rule of Bardilis, who will come up again later. And so Amintas III was forced to flee to Thessaly. In 492, he was able to return to the throne because the Illyrians were at this point just down to plunder and pillage in Macedonia, didn't really want to conquer it. But this would kind of set the stage for his reign, which... Not very effective, not a great ruler, probably enjoyed a poor relationship with the petty nobles and kings, if you want to call them that, in Upper Macedonia. So his control probably only actually extended to Lower Macedonia, and he was beset by invasions a couple times. He married at least two wives, and his wife Eurydice, Eurydice gave birth to Philip in 382 or 383 BCE. Philip was the third male child from this union, with Alexander and Perdiccas preceding him, as well as potentially a sister named Gurinoe. She might have been younger. It's unclear if she even exists. There's only a like crazy story that includes her at all. The other wife of Amintas III, Chygia, had three sons as well. But these were not favored to the throne for some reason. I guess maybe she was a junior wife. Maybe she wasn't as strong of a bloodline to Macedonia, like maybe she was some crazy far-flung barbarian type of thing, I don't know. Anyway, her sons were not contenders for the throne, it seems like. Tough. Now, the ancient sources don't give us any details about young Philip, and this is pretty par for the course with a lot of these ancient figures, and also for a lot of women, the poor, other marginalized groups, not given a ton of attention in ancient sources. We have a lot for Alexander, relatively a lot for Alexander, because after his life, he was recognized as a great figure, and a lot of those stories are probably embellished, if not outright made up. And then also, as we'll see, the circumstances to him coming to power and his birth and his like time as prince, much different than those of his father. We don't know a ton about Philip II's upbringing but we can assume he was held to the traditions we talked about with like the boar, unable to bathe, lots of athletic training, that whole gambit. Because that's what Macedonian nobility was held up to do. Like I touched on before, any Ardead male could make a claim to the throne, but they had to also kind of be pseudo-elected by the army, which maybe, you know, no spoilers here, will come into play later on down the line. But with the presence of two older brothers, it wasn't considered likely that Philip II would take the throne. And if he did, it'd probably have to be through a lot of bloodshed. 
It's also likely that this pseudo-electing power was more of like a ceremonial thing where when there was a clear heir to the throne, they'd just be like, yep, you're king. But if there wasn't a clear heir, they probably would get to nominate and elect one of the less, like lesser Ardead males, I guess. Amatas III would ultimately rule, if you want to even call it that, until 470 BCE, which was a pretty long reign. So I guess maybe I'm being unfair and he did some things right. And he also managed to die of natural causes. So despite being a relatively ineffective monarch, from what we can piece together, he at least had those two feathers in his cap. So now his eldest son, Alexander II, takes the throne. He was probably about 18, maybe a few years older. And at this point, Philip was about 12. Alexander the, Alexander II was ambitious. Maybe foolhardy, but definitely ambitious. And he pretty quickly after taking the throne leads an army to get involved in a power struggle in Thessaly. Kind of dumb, because Macedonia was surrounded by enemies, constantly trying to exploit their resources, and those troublesome Illyrians are at it again, launching some plundering campaigns into Macedonia. It is also at this point in the proceedings that Thebes, who had taken over as the preeminent power in Greece after defeating the Spartans at Lutra, they start getting involved, they start cropping up and flexing their muscle a little bit. So they force a peace between Macedonia and Thessaly, and as part of the agreement, and I guess sort of like as a stamp marking their power in the region, they take Philip as a hostage back to Thebes. Now this is hostage sort of like in the sense that Theon was a hostage in Game of Thrones. Like he's a guest of a well-respected household. He's given an education befitting his position. He's treated very well. And... He was housed in, he was a guest in the house of Pemenes, who was a wealthy and well-connected member of Theban society. Famously, he was a friends with Epaminondas, who led the Theban, the Theban army at Lutra and was considered innovative in his hoplite tactics. If you recall from one of the earlier episodes, his death is considered to have put a kibosh in any hopes for a true Theban hegemony because they didn't have as skilled leaders in the wings behind him. It is thought that Philip's time in Thebes was an important influence on him, that he saw some of the issues with democracy and how slow moving it could be, how prone to being exploited by bribery and corruption, and how a decisive monarch could act against it. That's all speculation, but I don't know, something there maybe. It is also said that he learned a great deal about military equipment and training and how to maybe improve the lagging Macedonian army and that he would bring a lot of what he experienced in Thebes to his kingship. And I would say this seems pretty likely given that Philip is obviously very smart as we'll see later and that he was in Thebes at its political and social high point and that he was in one of the leading homes of the Theban society which would allow him to brush elbows with some of its leading military and political social figures and all that. But it's all speculation. There's obviously no way to know any of that. In 367 BCE, just three years into his reign, Alexander II was murdered during a ritualistic war dance. His younger brother, Perdiccas, was not yet old enough to take the throne. And so Ptolemy of Alorus, who was likely behind the plot to kill Alexander in the first place, took over as regent of Macedonia. Ptolemy may have been a son-in-law of Amatas III, who then married Eurydice, either by threat 
or by choice on her part because of that story I mentioned earlier that references Philip's possible sister, but that's crazy. doesn't matter. The Thebans again intervene in political affairs in Macedonia. I don't really know what their aims were. Maybe to install someone more sympathetic to them to the throne, maybe to install their own regent for Jan Perdikas. Regardless, Ptolemy is able to bribe the mercenary serving them and eventually comes to terms with Thebans, but he has to send 50 more hostages, including his sons to Thebes, to ensure peace and Macedonian compliance. A campaign with an Ardia claimant to the throne was launched with a mercenary army, but Ptolemy is supposed to have asked an Athenian general by the name of Ephitrates, who apparently enjoyed a close relationship to Amatas III and his children. He asked him for help, and then Ephitrates chases the pretender away. In 365, Perdiccas, or someone acting for him, has Ptolemy murdered, and Perdiccas takes the throne as Perdiccas III. He renews the alliance with Thebes, and in return, Philip, now about 17, maybe 18, is returned home to Macedonia. Now, you know, 17, maybe 18, he has a claim to the throne if he, because he's old enough. He also, so, you know, given that he's 17 or 18, no sure thing that his brother isn't just claiming him to kill him and put to bed a potential rival. However, Perdiccas III, he does something a little different. He entrusts Philip with, I guess we call it like a governorship of one of the regions of Macedonia, likely the east on the Thracian border, which meant he also probably had some troops under his command, which in my mind, I would guess this meant that Perdiccas and Philip were pretty close, because why else would you entrust a potential rival with legitimate power of any kind? This is, you know, just speculation, but I would assume... That this wasn't like, hey, here's a little tiny position, shut up, you're not going to be king. But this was like, hey, I need your help. And that Philip was like a trustworthy and willing participant in this. Like, because why, it doesn't make sense that you give someone who could take your throne, given the tumult of this court, a position where they could prove their ability to the military and get a lot of support for themselves going. Doesn't make sense at all. One of the notable things about Perdiccas is that he liked Plato. However, he decided to back Amphipolis and other cities in the Chalcidian League in a war against Athens, which would ultimately prove to be a mistake as they lost, and the Athenians imposed a peace on them, which didn't really last, but the takeaway from this is that I think this is probably what starts the bad blood between Athens and Macedon, which will keep coming up again and again and again. But he was pretty clever, this Perdiccas character. He again faced troubles with the Illyrians because they just loved messing things up in Macedonia. And he was of the opinion that his army would often surrender too easily. And that was because they knew that the king would ransom them and get get them returned safely. So he organized a ruse where he pretended to negotiate for the ransom of some prisoners and then had the negotiators return without any of the hostages and spread the tale that the Illyrians refused to cede the prisoners for any sum of money and just executed them instead. And allegedly this worked, and his army's resolve was stiffened in future battles. But old Berdillus was still kicking around at this point, and despite being in his 90s, launched a campaign against 
Upper Macedonia. Now, Perdiccas, he responds quickly. You know, he was a decently effective ruler, and he gathered a large army at his back to drive out the invaders. This probably happens sometimes in the, in the late summer of 360 BCE or the spring of 359 BCE. Unclear there. And we don't really know anything about the battle itself, except that the Macedonians were thoroughly washed. Pat watch once again for the boys, got their asses kit, and Perdiccas was killed on the battlefield along with 4,000 of his soldiers. So the army's in retreat, Illyrians are on the loose. King is dead. Now his son is technically next in line to the throne, but he's an infant young boy at this point, and Philip was proclaimed leader. It is likely that he was initially only a regent, but given the extreme circumstances surrounding his taking over, he may have been called king immediately. We don't have a detailed description of this event, so, you know, unclear. Philip wasn't ever expected to be king, let alone a great king, and he would be overshadowed by his son, so not only were people not taking notes at the time, he didn't get the benefit of rewritten history on his behalf, or at least, you know, none that survives. And so Philip II, father of Alexander the Great, third son of a man nobody thought would become king, became king of Macedonia. A Macedonia which had been humbled by both Thebes and Athens to the south, faced an invasion by Illyrians who had shattered their army in the north, a defeated pretender once again returned, this time backed by the Thracians to the west, another pretender backed by Athens, and even the Paeonians plundering their northern frontier. I would go so far to say that this was not ideal, to say the absolute least. And while it's true, you know, didn't happen all at once, the king of Macedonia is very clearly in dire straits, surrounded by enemies, with a young 22 to 23 year old king on the throne. It's not a stretch to think that under a less skilled leader, this dire time could have spelled the end for Macedonian autonomy. A nation that had undergone decades of L's on the battlefield was relatively poor, with Alexander II, two kings before, Philip, only able to mint coins in bronze, and Perdiccas only able to muster a few silver coins, while the Illyrians and Chalcidians were able to mint plentiful coinage in gold, silver, and bronze. The military was in shambles. More on this in the next episode, but the cavalry was considered good, but flawed. And despite some efforts by Alexander II to reform it a little bit, the infantry was terrible and made up of a rabble of peasant farmers. And yet, due to the bountiful natural resources waiting to be harnessed and a border waiting to be solidified, a large population waiting to be invigorated, a sleeping superpower had just been awoken. But that's a story for next time. So, as always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. Help me rise up the charts a little bit, get some new listeners, I mean, you know the deal. You've been listening. You know the deal. And be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at High Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High T.O. Podcast for memes, updates. Probably the Spotify playlist will be starting in the next couple weeks. And, you know, whatever, whatever other random happenings I'm up to at any given point. If you want more High Obsessed, be sure to subscribe to the Patreon as well. Next time, we're going to be talking about Philip II's reign from where we're at now in 359 BCE, including more details on his early challenges and how he overcame them. 
to probably about 346 BCE, ending with the piece of Philatrates that episode. But we'll see. You know, we'll see how things develop. So until next time, remember, if you want to be Greek, just tell them that your great, 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 great grandfather was Heracles, and you can do whatever you want. Peace.